At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's deceptively hard to get an answer to the question, how hot is it these days? But if you look closely, you'll get the gist. In El Paso, Texas, they have clocked triple-digit temperatures for more than a month at this point. In Florida, it's getting hot enough that coral reefs are dying. And in Las Vegas, the concrete sidewalks are a sizzling 144 degrees. And sure, Vegas is a desert, but just hearing all this is enough to get you to put your AC on blast. I actually don't have the AC on blast at the moment, and uh, now that you mention it, it's kind of tempting to, to turn it up. Darna Noor knows all about the heat. She covers the climate for The Guardian. For her, the summer has felt both horrifying and inevitable. Often I feel like it's some mix between I told you so and, uh, oh my God, I, even I didn't think that it could be this bad. But Darna is particularly interested in climate solutions. And I called her up to talk about a tactic she is seeing more and more these days. Local municipalities and even just individual people taking climate change to court. Sometimes it's people suing the government, trying to get it to regulate greenhouse gases better. Sometimes it's the government suing oil companies over their role in the climate disaster. And sure, litigation is not new. But Darna says the broad implications of this litigation are... There have long been climate lawsuits that have targeted specific uh, pieces of infrastructure, specific policies. But the new trend I think that we've really seen explode over the past five years, even the past three years really, is this idea of holding somebody responsible for climate change itself. So not, you know, the emissions from a particular coal-fired power plant um, or the emissions related to one specific highway, but rather this idea that climate change itself um, has, you know, been created by specific actors. How many lawsuits are there right now looking to find someone, like anyone, to blame for climate change? God, around the world, there are hundreds, and within the U.S., there are dozens of lawsuits um, targeting either oil companies and their sort of enablers, uh, the fossil fuel industry at large, or targeting governments for promoting uh, the use and, and production of fossil fuels. Today on the show, can we sue our way out of the climate crisis? Probably not, but here's why a heck of a lot of lawyers are trying. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You've sort of said that it feels like something's changing with climate litigation. There's certainly more of it. Do you sit around and think, like, what is it? That's changing. Like, can you put your finger on it? Yeah, I think there's a few big shifts that we've seen. Um, the one thing that I think has really made a huge difference is that, frankly, more people are talking about these suits, and that means that more people are filing these suits. Hmm. But I think that as we see these cases um, start to sort of gain steam, um, as we see, you know, trials, as we see cases move into discovery and things like this, I think that we are really starting to see the patterns in the ways that. Uh, the folks filing these suits are aiming to use litigation to bring about climate accountability. Yeah, you've said that there are like a couple of broad categories that these lawsuits fall into. What are they? In the U.S., there's really two broad categories of of climate accountability lawsuits. The first one is a sort of constitutional suit, and those are directed at governments, whether that's state governments or, in one case, the federal government, Um, All of the ones that we've seen in the U.S. have been brought by youth plaintiffs, which is pretty interesting. They're basically saying, like, climate change is unconstitutional, right? Yeah, exactly. So they're saying for for various reasons, they say that, uh, you know, the government's sort of enabling of the climate crisis um, and its refusal to stop, uh, for instance, leasing fossil fuels uh, is threatening their constitutional rights. How does that work at the state level versus the federal level? So at the state level, there actually are some states that uh, that include in their constitutions a right to a clean and healthful environment. Montana is one of them. Um, but not all state constitutions include that kind of language. And so there are other constitutions, um, like, for instance, the federal constitution, that uh, don't guarantee any specific environmental rights, but of course do guarantee rights like, you know, those to life, liberty and property um, and in those cases, the lawyers sort of argue that uh, that the continuation of climate change and the government's perpetuation of it uh, is in violation of those basic inalienable rights. I know there's been a lot of attention on this one particular case held v. Montana, where a group of young people sued the state of Montana because of that part of their constitution that sort of guarantees them a, a healthy environment. I know you went there to look at how this trial played out in, in Helena, can you tell me what you saw? Yeah. So being in the courtroom uh, in Montana to see the Held versus Montana trial was pretty uh, moving. It really felt like history was being made. It's the first of these to go to trial, right? Exactly. Yeah. It was the first ever uh, trial in a constitutional climate lawsuit in the U.S., um, there are 16 kids who brought the lawsuit, and the majority of them actually testified um, and gave these really sort of personal, really moving testimonies about the ways that climate breakdown has threatened their ways of life. We heard testimony from the named plaintiff, Ricky Held, who's now 22, and she talked about how climate change is threatening uh, essentially her family's way of life on their ranch in Broadus, Montana. Um, she said that, uh, you know, she grew up on that ranch, um, but due to, you know, threats like drought, um, all of those sort of uh, essential uh, essential components of ranch work have been really threatened. Um, you know, she said that amid record heat, record drought in the past few years, it's been a lot harder to know how exactly her family is going to get water for their cattle. 
Um, she said that it's been much, much harder to do ranch work for any sort of extended period of time because of wildfire smoke in the summers. Um, she said that unpredictable weather patterns in general have made it really difficult to think about what the future of the ranch could look like, not just for her, but also for, you know, her family one day if she chooses to have one. This case being a very Montana case, I wonder in some ways if it limits its impact. Because while it's the first of these youth-led lawsuits to go to trial, we're waiting for a verdict. But if the verdict comes back in these kids' favor, will it have any impact on places other than Montana? Yeah, it's an interesting question. In some ways, because of the structure of the lawsuit, the testimony had to be focused on Montana. Uh, you know, these are all kids who are from Montana, um, who are specifically saying that it's the actions of the Montana government that are threatening their, you know, kind of rights to a clean and healthy environment. But while the technical legal precedent will only apply within Montana's borders, I do think that there's something to be said for, um, you know, judges and other states and and potential youth plaintiffs and others uh, in other states looking to that kind of victory and saying if you're a judge hey maybe I'm going to be more likely to take a case like this seriously or if you're a kid somewhere else you know maybe you look to these kids in Montana and you say hey well I'm also really attached to my um you know to my land in I don't know the beautiful state of Maryland say but the montananess of the lawsuit it's also being used kind of as a cudgel by the government, which is being sued here, right? Like they're saying, yes, there are all these climate changes happening, but you can't blame Montana for it. Like that wildfire isn't because of what we've done here necessarily. We're in a big world. And so why are we being held accountable? Totally. Um, you know, I think honestly, this is a it's a difficult point that the state has raised because you know, there's some truth to the idea, obviously, that Montana is not solely responsible for climate change. Um, obviously, Montana is one sort of small emissions piece of the larger global pie. That said, you know, uh, many sort of experts who gave testimony at the trial noted that Montana's footprint alone, Montana's emissions footprint alone, is actually larger than that of some countries. Um, and, you know, as some of the sort of attorneys on the case and some advocates raised, this idea that if we're all responsible, then no one's responsible is really dangerous because, you know, obviously there's not going to be one particular lawsuit um, that targets everyone who's ever been responsible for climate change. And so, you know, if nobody acts, um, then we're going to just perpetuate the problem. Okay, so that's youth who are suing the government over climate change. Let's get into the second category you mentioned. This is an individual suing the government. It's the government suing oil companies. And a lot of these cases are focused on misinformation. Yes. The idea that oil companies knew about climate change early on. Can you tell me about why and how? Like, what's their proof here? I mean, there's a well-documented history, honestly, of oil companies sowing doubt about the climate crisis you know, the Exxon new investigation led by outlets like Inside Climate News dug up tons of information uh, on that sort of history of misinformation, PR campaigns, um, you know, efforts to cover up climate science. You know, there was a study just this past January that actually showed Exxon had made what it called breathtakingly accurate climate predictions back in the 1970s. 
Um, it sort of it looked back at climate scientists who were advising Exxon. Um, and those scientists essentially made these really, really close predictions of what the climate crisis would look like and attributed those changes to fossil fuels. And so the idea there is, you know, if Exxon A knew that fossil fuels were causing climate change and B knew how bad it was going to be, uh, as well as an entity like the U.S. government or as well as top scientists, then why didn't they do something about it? It sounds like tobacco litigation. Yeah. Could you... Tell me about one of these cases and the details that are coming out and how the government came to the decision to sue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's a lot like tobacco litigation. And I think that in many cases, that's by design. Uh, Many of the lawyers who are working on these cases, I think, are really looking for big oil to have what they're calling its sort of tobacco moment. Um, The most recent one of these misinformation lawsuits was filed just last month by Multnomah County, which is the largest county in Oregon. And this case is really interesting because it focuses not only on the sort of broad threats of climate change uh, to Multnomah County, but rather focuses on this really specific instance. Um, So in June 2021, there was this unprecedented heat dome that blanketed the Pacific Northwest killed dozens of people in Multnomah County, um, especially in Portland, and created this real crisis situation. And so this lawsuit um, that was filed again in June um, draws on all of that research showing that, um, you know, oil companies knew that the climate crisis was uh, coming down the pipe if they didn't do something to change their products. And it also draws on research that shows um, that the heat, um, that the heat dome that they saw in 2021 was exacerbated by climate breakdown. And so they sort of took these two things together and said, okay, then we should be holding fossil fuel companies interest groups uh, accountable for their role in that event. I'm kind of curious how a local government like Portland decides it's in their interest to sue an oil company because litigation's expensive. It takes a lot of resources. That's uh, part of why it's an effective tool. So it's a big deal for local officials to say, we're going to go to court over this. Was it just that something like the heat dome was so expensive for them? They were like, we don't have anything to lose here. Like, we need to get this money somehow. I certainly think that the fact that climate disasters are becoming so much more expensive for local governments um, is a a huge sort of catalyst for for these lawsuits. Um, I also think that, you know, the Oregon, the the Multnomah County case is interesting because um, it was an instance where a law firm that had never been involved in climate litigation in the past um, sort of got in the ring and brought a suit for the first time. Uh, And so, you know, I think that probably that wouldn't happen if uh, the municipality didn't think that they had a shot at winning. Um, And I mean, maybe they won't win everything like they're asking for frankly a, a ton of money like billions and billions of dollars to upgrade um you know infrastructure and create climate mitigation plans and all of these kinds of things um but yeah i think i think that there is an idea that if you're going to be spending all of that money to uh deal with climate disasters that they as they happen um you know there's a sort of desperate need to get ahead of the next disaster and to come up with the money to fund the sort of changes that are needed before the next disaster happens. There's one more strategy that I want to make sure we talk about that's sort of associated with these disinformation cases. This is using racketeering charges to go after oil companies. Can you explain who's doing this and and when it emerged? 
The first racketeering climate disinformation case was brought last year um, by municipalities in Puerto Rico. This is a lawsuit over Hurricane Maria, right? Yes, totally. Um, and it was interesting. It was a federal lawsuit against all of these oil and coal firms for their role in uh, in 2017's Hurricane Maria. And it said that, um, you know, essentially those oil and coal firms had been engaged in um, a kind of conspiracy that could be likened to like what mob bosses or mafia bosses um, had had wielded in the past, um, essentially saying, you know, you all put your heads together. You decided on a strategy of covering up uh, climate science, sowing doubt about climate change uh, and continuing to peddle your products anyway um, and used a, a RICO suit to do that. You know, the big oil companies have been sued a lot. They have huge litigation teams, and they have a lot of money to sink into these cases. In the past, they've managed to fend off accountability successfully. But I get the sense from talking to you that you think their luck could be running out. Why do you feel like that? I mean, honestly, because climate change is becoming a sort of unavoidable threat. Um, you know, I think that for so long... Uh, state governments or local governments, for example, have thought of climate change as something to, you know, kind of put in the background, maybe a thing to sort of talk a little bit about in um, environmental planning, maybe something to pay lip service to on the campaign trail. But I think that lots of leaders are sort of saying, no, this is actually an integral part of what it means to run a government now. We're not going to be able to run our government unless we, for instance, uh, invest in floodplains, invest in um, making sure our agriculture is drought resistant, invest in making sure that we have roads that don't flood every time it rains. Um, and I think that many of them are starting to say, hey, uh, if we're going to be the ones who are held responsible for this, if we're going to be the ones who have to prepare, um, maybe we need some help in doing that. And maybe we shouldn't be the ones who have to bear the cost of this. Perhaps there's someone else who should be helping, and perhaps that someone else is uh, is the, the industry that created the problem in the first place. We'll be back after a quick break. One question I wanted to make sure Darna Nora addressed is, what would a tobacco moment for climate change really look like? Obviously, Taking money from oil companies could make trafficking and fossil fuels a lot less appealing. But Darna says there's something else that's powerful about this comparison. It means you can look at what's happening now and compare it with what happened when big tobacco got taken to court. And then you can figure out, is what's happening with these climate lawsuits really an inflection point? So one sort of big turning point in the tobacco litigation was the moment where more law firms started to get involved. So not just advocates. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think we're in some ways starting to see that now. You know, Multnomah County in Oregon, for example, their, their case was brought by um, law firms that had focused on things like asbestos in the past, had never brought climate-focused litigation there's another moment that I think was really important with big tobacco, um, and that was the moment that uh, that the industry's kind of trade associations and enablers got some of the heat. And I think we're also starting to see that now. You know, there's lawsuits, for instance, that are targeting uh, the American Petroleum Institute, which is the um, largest trade association for the fossil fuel industry. I'll say, though, that the biggest difference for me between um, the, the big tobacco litigation and the big oil litigation is that... Tobacco was a huge problem for the U.S., right? It created all sorts of health risks and like uh, the oil industry, it made a lot of people 
um, very rich in the process. But our entire economy does not run on tobacco. You know, I think that the challenge ahead for climate litigation is much, much larger uh, than what it looked like for the tobacco lawsuits. Can we talk about what would happen if the people bringing these climate cases win? (laughs) I mean, the two categories of cases, the youth climate lawsuits and the government disinformation lawsuits, it's easy to talk about them together because they seem to be asking for similar things. But actually, the tangible outcomes of these cases would be really different. So can you lay that out? Like if the kids suing the government won, that's not really about money, right? But if the government's suing the oil companies won, that is about cash. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of bizarre to see these two kinds of cases sort of being rolled out at the same time. Um, You know, on the one hand, we're seeing government saying that uh, they are not responsible for the climate crisis. On the other hand, we're seeing kids saying that governments are the ones who should be held responsible. Um, and they also work pretty differently. So, you know, the the youth climate uh, constitutional cases don't really demand damages. Um, and, you know, in the case of, for instance, Montana, where we could see a verdict in the next few weeks, the only thing that it could really do is kind of make a declaratory statement. So the judge can say, hey, these kids are right. Um, these specific policies that are on the books in Montana are not constitutional. The idea is then Montana kind of has to follow up with that and say, okay, well, if they're not constitutional, we can't enforce them. The disinformation cases are different because they are largely focused on um, on cash. You know, they include a huge variety of asks in terms of damages. You know, in some cases, they're asking for damages to recuperate the cost of specific climate disasters. In other cases, the focus is more on uh, on planning for future climate disasters and and help in sort of creating uh, resilience plans for cities or for states. Um, but all of them include damages in one way or the other. I was looking at what the oil companies had to say about these lawsuits, and I was struck by something the counsel for Chevron said. Like he looked at the disinformation lawsuits, for instance. He called them wasteful. And he said the climate crisis requires a coordinated and thoughtful federal policy response, not a disjointed patchwork of lawsuits in state courts. And the thing is, I'm not sure I disagree with him, but in the absence of a coordinated and thoughtful federal policy, it seems like taking the oil companies to court and making them pay for massive litigation doesn't seem like a bad tactic to me. Is that part of the goal here? One of the main critiques that you hear of these kinds of lawsuits is that really this should be a space for uh, legislation, not for litigation. But as you're saying, you know, we really have not seen the kind of planned response to climate change that, you know, that I think that we need and the advocates certainly think that we need. I think that, you know, the the idea of the litigation is not to say, hey, we're going to solve climate change through the courts. But rather, it's to use the courts to push the actors who would be responsible for that coordinated um, federal policy response to actually enact it. I keep thinking no matter what happens with these cases, it's not going to roll back the clock. Like we're still going to be warming. Like at, at best, we would be able to not warm further. When you talk to the people bringing these suits, do they imagine winning and what it could mean for them? Yeah, I mean, certainly I think anybody involved in these cases imagines winning. 
I also don't think that anyone who's involved in any of this litigation or frankly, anyone who knows anything about climate change thinks that any case or any policy even or any sort of technology, there's no silver bullet, right? Um, So, you know, when you talk to the plaintiffs in the Montana case, for instance, I think for them, a lot of what they imagine is the ability to have trust in their state government if they win this case. I think a lot of what they imagine is to say, hey, at the very least, we did something to lower emissions in a way that's tangible for us, but obviously isn't going to fix everything. So, you know, I think it would be pretty delusional, frankly, to think that any single one of these lawsuits or honestly, even the lawsuits as a whole um, will end climate change. You know, there's some amount of warming that we have baked in. It's also really important to adapt to the warming world. Um, and these cases might provide money to do that, but they're not going to, you know, actually uh, set set the process in, in motion um, in the way that something like, you know, policy could. Yeah, it's like a massive experiment, expensive experiment in shifting the Overton window, right? Like just <laughs> showing people it's possible. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And also, you know, I think a lot of it is a sort of attempt to uh, teach people that climate change is not something that is kind of, you know, it's not it's not all of our responsibility in the way that we're sometimes told. Um, you know, the the people who are most responsible for climate change are particular people with, uh, with you know, names and, and profit motives. Uh, and so, you know, I think I think a lot of it is also about sort of um, naming villains who um, who bear responsibility. Darna, I'm super grateful for your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Darna Noor is a fossil fuels and climate reporter at The Guardian. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.